spring of 1946, Alma Sippel moved her infant daughter, Irma, and her toddler, Robert, to Memphis, Tennessee. Irma's father, Airman Julius John Talos, was shipping out to Panama, but planned to marry Alma when he got back. The young couple had met in Biloxi, Mississippi while Alma was bartending and had been together for just over a year when they conceived Irma. Irma was born on August 27, 1945, and little Robert had been born to a previous marriage. Alma had a few daughters who were living with their father, her first husband, in Kentucky. Alma was used to having a rough. She grew up in Kentucky as one of 17 children and got married at age 14, seemingly just to escape the abusive household. When she met Julius, she really thought that this time it would be different. It would be love, and she and her family could start over again. So while Julius Talos was away, Alma and her two children took up residence in a small one-bedroom apartment in Memphis. Their sofa pulled out to serve as a bed for Alma and Robert, while Irma would sleep in the crib. They didn't have much, but they had each other, and the promise of Talos coming home to complete their family. He absolutely adored Irma and lived every beat of his heart for her from the time she was born. Six weeks after moving into the small, oil-heated apartment, a woman from the Tennessee Children's Home Society was roaming the building. The woman, Georgia Tan, told Alma that she had been called to investigate an alleged child abuse case with the neighbor. They had a brief conversation and Alma climbed back into her chauffeured black limousine and drove off. The next day, she showed up again and knocked on Alma's door. This time, she began to ask questions about the children's father. Where was he? When would he be back? Would he be back? Really asking a lot, considering she didn't know this woman at all and had no reason to be there for her. She pointed out to Alma that Irma's nose was runny and the baby appeared to be ill. So Georgia asked her if the baby had been to see a doctor, which of course was told that they didn't have enough money for a doctor. Seeming like an incredibly generous and compassionate woman, Georgia offered to take Irma to the hospital with her for a checkup since Alma couldn't afford to. She told her that she had to go alone with Irma or the hospital would try to charge them a lot of money for the checkup. If Georgia took her alone, it wouldn't cost them a thing. Alma got back into her limousine with Irma and they drove off again. When Irma still had not been brought back home by the next day, Alma took Robert and went to the Memphis General Hospital herself. While she was there, she saw Irma jumping up and down for her, for her in a room with other babies, and she seemed to be doing just fine. So she asked the nurse if she could go in and see her daughter, to which the nurse firmly replied that all of the babies in that room belonged to the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Hey, hey, I'm your host, Catherine, and you're listening to Murder and Mediumship. I hope that all of you had a chance to check out the show's new segment, Coffee and Conjurings, that premiered last Wednesday. Like I said, that content will be out every single Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This week's episode features a favorite podcast host of mine, and I'm really excited for y'all to hear it. Since last Monday's episode, the show has welcomed seven new members to Patreon, and I'm so excited to have all of you here with me supporting the creation of the show. A lot of you have taken Intuitive Development 101 with me, and I wanted to let you know that I have an afternoon class that starts on October 19th at 11.30 a.m. It'll run for six weeks, and we'll meet roughly for 45 minutes to an hour once per week via Zoom. 
If you've already taken that and you want to continue to expand on your abilities, then consider joining Patreon as there will now be a tier available to join our monthly psychic circles. I'll be hosting two circles per month where we will focus on mediumship and the other on psychic skills. You don't have to be intuitive to join at this tier as those who are will be practicing reading for others as well as for each other and other patrons. This is for practice and they will not be super in-depth personal readings. There will be a standalone option for this as well as one that includes the live recording experiences. Look for that link to join today. I'm excited to see a lot of familiar faces both in the psychic circle as well as in intuitive development 101. So let's get back to what happened to baby Irma Tayos. Elma began to call Georgia repeatedly, and all of her calls went unanswered until Georgia called Elma almost out of the blue and told her that Irma had passed away and that the state paid for her burial. She refused to answer any more questions or to take any of her phone calls. Poor, heartbroken, and without Tayos by her side to help her search, Elma took Robert back to Ohio, back to live with his grandmother while she went back to Memphis, Tennessee determined to find Irma's grave as she hadn't been allowed to be present when Irma was buried. The last contact she was able to receive from Georgia was when a representative at the Children's Home Society finally told her the case is closed and Miss Tan has no comment. Unable to find Irma's grave, she now went back to Ohio to get Robert and then took him to live in Kentucky and to be near her two daughters from her first marriage. She took a job there and tried to move forward. As time went on, though, she heard less and less from Tayos, and she began to drink more and more to help deal with her crushing loss and overall feeling of defeat. While Irma was reportedly deceased, Elma still didn't know for certain that Irma was dead or if she could still be alive since she had never actually located that headstone. Trying to regain a sense of normalcy after Tayos returned to the U.S., but went back to Flint, Michigan, Elma married James Smith. They were together for about 12 years, and they had four more children, three daughters and one son. Smith never really showed any interest or support in searching for Irma, but when they divorced and she once again remarried, she found the supportive husband she had always needed. And it really feels to me like Alma went through this life before Irma, before Robert, before her other children, where she was she was abused. She was just like emotionally tortured, just a really sad existence for such a long time. And then she gets married and it's this horrific marriage where she was married way too young and she has children with this person. And then she leaves him and she finds love with Tayos and they have a baby together and she has her son with her. And it just felt like the beginning of a love story, right? And it all came crashing down in such a tragic and horrific way. So she now married Steve Sipple and gave birth to one more daughter, and they lived in Kentucky together until 1969 when they left for the West Coast to California. In 1982, with Steve having her back, together they wrote to the Bureau of Vital Statistics in Nashville, Tennessee, looking for answers. They were unable to provide a death certificate for anyone with the name Irma Tayo, so they spoke to the district attorney of Memphis. But because of privacy laws surrounding adoption in Tennessee, he also couldn't help. They then implored with the Tennessee Department of Human Services, who left them without answers, just as all the rest had. She had no idea where else to look for her daughter. Over 40 years after Alma's baby had been taken from her by Georgia Tan, she was sitting down watching TV, just flipping through the channels when something on Unsolved Mysteries caught her attention, a show she wouldn't normally have watched. 
for whatever reason, I would say divine intervention, but that's just me and a lot of you listening to this show, she stopped flipping through the channels and started watching the episode. The episode that aired on December 13th, 1989 would forever change the course of her life. The topic? Georgia Tan, a Tennessee social worker who ran a black market baby scandal profiting millions of dollars over the course of 20 years spanning the 1920s through the 40s. As they flashed the face of the thieving, immoral criminal across the screen, Alma immediately recognized her as the woman who stole Irma from her so long ago. She learned from the show that a volunteer agency had been established in Tennessee called Right to Know. They were tasked with finding and reuniting families who were separated by adoption in Memphis. Just a few weeks later, Alma had gathered up the courage to write to Write to Know about her interactions with Georgia Tan in the 1940s. And it didn't happen overnight, but after seven more agonizing months, Alma received a letter from the agency. With the help of Marilyn Miller, an independent search consultant in California, Write to Know had found her daughter. They were able to tell who adopted Irma, but the state she was adopted to was not in the records, which we will find out why soon enough. These inconsistencies were to protect Georgia and her human trafficking scam. Eventually, they found that Irma was now named Sandra Kimbrell. She was married with two children of her own, one in college and one ready to graduate high school, and she worked as a registered nurse. They found that she was living in Cincinnati, Ohio, but her phone number wasn't listed. So Alma sent a bouquet of flowers with a note that simply said, please call regarding family matters, and left her phone number. The day after the flowers arrived, Sandra called and left a very simple message for Alma and her husband, Steve, not knowing why or what was going on. I can't even imagine making this phone call. You just hear family matters. You don't know this person. You don't know this phone number. You don't know what is about to happen. This just had to be such a an anxiety-riddled experience. But when they connected, they would finally know where Alma's missing daughter had been for the last 44 years. Irma had grown up in Cincinnati, Ohio with her adoptive parents. She was not, in fact, dead. They too eventually divorced, but she remained with her mom living there in the suburbs as the only child. As she describes it, she had a beautiful life and had never really thought to look for her birth parents as she assumed she had been surrendered due to not being able to be cared for and likely had been born to an unwed mother. Hearing the story was, I'm sure, difficult to swallow, and she talks about not knowing how to handle having an entirely different name than the one she had been given and had known for all of her life. What had actually happened to Irma after she had been taken to the hospital that day is so much more sinister and complex than a simple case of kidnapping. The true and shocking story about how Irma ended up adopted in Ohio isn't one that's shared by just a few other people who suffered run-ins with Georgia Tan, and it's certainly not exclusive to just Irma and Alma, but the Children's Home Society of Memphis, Tennessee actually did this to thousands of children and people, upwards of 5,000, in fact. So let's go back to the brains and the brutality that started all of this. To do that, we go back to the birth of one Georgia Tan, born in 1891 to Judge George Tan and Beulah Yates. Georgia had big dreams of working as a lawyer herself, but women in law just wasn't common. And her father, the judge, pushed her to go to school to be a social worker. A more womanly career choice if a woman should have to feel like she had to work. 
And while she gravitated toward flannel shirts and pants, they forced her to her cute dresses, dance lessons, and piano lessons. Georgia graduated from Martha Washington College in 1913, and though she took and even passed the bar exam, she still went on to study more social work at Columbia University for two summers. It was in 1922 that she began working at the Mississippi Children's Home Society, where she was fired for, quote, dubious child-placing practices. Kicked out of one children's home, she went off to the next. Georgia and her friend Ann Atwood moved to Memphis, Tennessee together. With Atwood's illegitimate son and Georgia's adopted daughter, June, still working in social work, she procured a position as executive secretary of the Shelby branch of Tennessee Children's Home Society. At the time, adoption wasn't nearly as popular as it is today, but it was certainly a lot less expensive than it is today. To adopt a child within the state of Tennessee in 1922, it cost only $7, which today would only be near $100. As adoption grew in popularity among infertile couples, Georgia saw the opportunity to make money off of these orphans and desperate parents. Boy, did she make a lot of it. She and Atwood established their black market baby business at 1556 Poplar Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee. She began to place orphan babies for adoption with with out-of-state families where she could charge $750 or even more, and then would record them as in-state adoptions within the boundaries of the state of Tennessee, where it would cost again only $7, pocketing the difference every time. That's a $743 difference. In the 30s and 40s, there were times she would charge upwards of $1,000, which is by today's standards over ten grand. If anyone questioned why she was charging so much, she'd tell them that the fees were for travel, attorney's fees, home visits, all of which was actually a dishonest way of saying she was taking it and keeping it all for herself. To help grow her consumer pool, she began to place ads for adoptions in the newspaper, showing children as Christmas gifts and even giving babies away as raffle prizes. Can you even imagine seeing this in the newspaper? So for a few years in a row, every year at Christmas time, Georgia would raffle off 20 to 30 babies as part of a, quote, Christmas baby giveaway, and the cost per raffle ticket was only $25. The kicker is that those who bought tickets thought they were making donations to the Children's Home Society to improve the lives of the kids, the stolen kids, and to get them better medical care and whatever else. But in reality, Georgia was taking all of this money for herself. How did she get away with it? I mean, at one point, she had even created a baby catalog to help you pick out your baby. While this woman was touring the country lecturing about how good for everyone adoption is, she was stealing kids off the streets or even straight out of preschools. Now, my stomach was flopping while I researched this episode, and I cannot tell you, my kids were at school and in daycare, and I just wanted to run and pick them up because. It's just the the things that she got away with. It's horrifying. Imagine this. She had so much support for the work that she was doing that she had even discussed adoption with Eleanor Roosevelt and President Harry Truman. She let them know that adopted kids were excellent opportunities to poor, to turn poor kids into a higher rate type of child. She literally saw poor people as breeders and wealthier people as those who should raise them. 
So meanwhile, while she was actively targeting homes for unwed mothers, she was also visiting welfare hospitals to identify children to take there. She went to prisons to obtain more babies for her black market. And in many instances, she would bribe doctors and nurses into telling the poor unwed mothers that their babies died during childbirth or shortly thereafter, and that they just needed her to sign off on the burial, that it would be provided by the state when what they were really signing was their rights to their baby away. Georgia would go so far as to coerce laboring moms into signing during active labor. She truly believed she was stealing these kids away to better lives, as if she were playing God or something. With a really good paycheck, though. How the hell wasn't she found out sooner? Because again, this went on for 20 years. Think of it as this way. She was targeting poor women, unwed women, and women who had no one. They could report this to the authorities all they wanted, and some of them did, but the authorities were either being paid off by Georgia, or they didn't see these young, poor women as credible, and they shrugged it off. Further, if papers were signed as they always were, they couldn't do anything about it, especially with the privacy laws. As far as the public could tell, the Children's Home Society was incredibly successful, and the mayor, Mayor Crump, was happy about that. It was keeping Memphis on the map in a positive light, which up until recently really wasn't the case. And to keep the society kids moving through, Georgia just skimmed a little off the top to Crump, and he'd look the other way and protect her from any investigations that could have possibly come up. Not only because people were raising their eyebrows, but no one could get to her. Not only did she have the mayor, doctors, and nurses involved, but she even had a family court judge in on her scheme. What kind of blows my mind a little bit more, and I apologize if this is sexist, but this judge was a female and was still doing this. And that just like, like the maternal instincts in my body just are screaming at this. Judge Camille Kelly would push adoptions through left and right. All she needed was for Georgia to confirm that these children were in front of her, that the children in front of her were from homes that were unable to properly care for them. At Georgia's nod, she would take custody from divorcing women and sign abandonment papers, thus giving custody to Georgia to adopt them out to, quote, better homes. So not only did her accomplices ignore the numerous complaints about stolen children, but they were helping her to steal them. Kids were adopted right away. The ones who were adopted right away wouldn't have to endure what the other ones did, though. The ones who were slow to be adopted out, Georgia took back to her home back to the children's home, away from the hospital where doctors advised her to keep them in the hospital while they were so small. She had older kids running the home and taking care of the little ones and where other, quote, orphans weren't helping. And I say orphans in air quotes because a lot of them had parents. They just weren't good parents, according to Georgia. So where there weren't orphans helping, she was actually employing drug addicts and pedophiles. She didn't only employ pedophiles, though, but she was one herself. There are dozens of accounts of children who passed through the Tennessee Children's Home who fell victim not only to being ripped away from their biological families, but were also sexually victimized by either Georgia or one of her employees. They were kept sedated for cooperation, fed rationed amounts of food, starved, physically beaten, and hundreds, maybe of thousands of children died in her care. And it wasn't just toddlers and babies. She even tracked young teen girls, selling them off to single men with less than desirable intentions. 
1941, the society shockingly lost their endorsement from the Child Welfare League of America because of the discrepancies in her paperwork or the total loss of paperwork altogether pertaining to child placement. Her excuse, though? She claimed that she was protecting the children and the families by following the privacy laws in Tennessee pertaining to adoption. The more that I researched her horrific crimes, the more sick to my stomach I felt. Not only was she taking children from prisoners and mental patients, but she would see kids outside alone, promise them ice cream or a ride in her fancy limo if they came with her, not knowing they would never see their families again. She had eyes everywhere, even in preschools where school providers would alert her to children who were too poor or had single parents and Georgia would come in and pretend to be working under her licensure as a social worker and only steal them to sell them. Children old enough to remember that they had families. Georgia would convince parents that these kids would be blank slates after adoption, not even remembering who they were or where they came from, which just, how do you even believe that? Are you so desperate for a child that you believe that these kids won't remember who they are and where they're from? One such survivor of Georgia Tans was Norma Sue, who was taken at age eight along with her five siblings. Georgia pulled up to the front yard while their mom was in the hospital and she got all of the kids into her car and kidnapped them and trafficked them in January of 1943. Norma and her eight-year-old twin sister stayed at the society home for three agonizing months and were used as child labor, changing babies, fetching babies, and she was fortunate enough to at least be adopted alongside her twin sister, though, to a family in Philadelphia where she was told by her adoptive parents, I'm your new mom, I'm your new parents, And while maybe innocently enough on that family's behalf, they likely had no idea what had really happened to Norma Sue and her sister, let alone their four other siblings. And do you know why the families didn't know? Georgia wrote fictional backstories for most of these kids. You know, as if the I stole this kid from a river shanty front yard just wouldn't cut it. So she came up with lies about the kids being from good families, attractive moms, medical school fathers. They were orphans, yada, yada, yada. Never that they were kidnapped. By the way, the twins, their new parents were told that they were only six years old to make them more marketable for adoption. They were two years older than they actually were told, than the parents were told. The documents had different names than their given names to continue to make their families more and more difficult to trace. Ever the sharp businesswoman, Tan saw opportunity for Jewish families to adopt when the majority of agencies were run by Christians, so she just fudged the paperwork and made these unsuspecting families believe that their new babies came from, quote, good Jewish homes. It wasn't even just the bio families or the children who were victimized. Georgia knew no bounds, but she saw opportunity to make money absolutely everywhere. If an adoptive family missed a payment for their new child, she would repossess the kid. Even if they had made their payments, she would sometimes go back and tell them that the bio family had someone who now wants to take the baby, and that if they didn't pay a big, huge fee for attorneys to fight it, they would have to give their new baby back. They couldn't even ask too many questions about the child or the family that they came from, or she'd threaten again to take the new addition to their family from them. George's reach was so far that she placed babies with celebrities like Joan Crawford, Lana Tanner, Lana Turner, sorry, Dick Powell, and the governor of New York. Over 5,000 babies were adopted, many of them outside of the state of Tennessee, and the majority were placed in New York or California. 
NASCAR driver Gene Tapia's son was stolen almost immediately after his birth while Gene was actively fighting in World War II. He's in Europe. He and his wife Francine eventually tracked him down 47 years later. By 1950, the agency was under investigation and Mayor Crump was no longer in office. Tan was losing her behind-the-scenes support structure. Thousands of her adoptions were coming up as questionable, but the public had no idea how bad it really was. Robert Taylor, the attorney investigating Tan in the late 40s, discovered that she had profited over $1 million, which would be roughly $11 million today. Through his investigation of Tan, ex-employees told him absolute horror stories. Like if an infant was too weak, it would be left to die in the sun. If it was too ugly, too old, or had some sort of disability, employees would be asked to, quote, get rid of them. An unmarked plot in Memphis Elmwood Cemetery was found to have 20 bodies buried in it, while many, many more were found buried on her property. These children would have been given a second chance at survival had they been kept with their birth parents. At the end of his investigation, Taylor turned in a 240-page report citing the many deaths of children while under the care of Children's Home Society, how they weren't properly cared for, how they were removed from the hospital despite the doctors advising her not to take the babies, and even cited an outbreak of dysentery at the home in 1945 where 40 to 50 babies died in a four to five month time span. The president of the Right to Know agency, Denny Gold, believed that Georgia thought she was doing good work, taking children from breeder homes, people in poverty who couldn't give kids a good life, and handing them over to people in better financial predicaments, in her eyes, better suited to raise a child. But to believe this is to ignore the fact that she blackmailed people to protect her profits and she ripped families apart, sometimes even the ones that she had so grotesquely put together in the first place. Following the episode of Unsolved Mysteries in January of 1989, Denny Glad Glad received 660 calls about either losing a child to or being a child of Georgia Tan's Children's Home Society. It's believed that even today, only about 50 of these cases have been solved, leaving thousands and thousands without answers. Georgia died of uterine cancer three days before the state investigation could deliver the report to the governor. Judge Kelly resigned before she could be fired and passed away in 1954. The Shelby County chapter of the Tennessee Children's Home Society was closed just months after Tan's death. And if you're thinking that maybe the victims at least got some financial compensation, you'd be sorely wrong. All that money and they saw none of it. Georgia knew she was dying and as many lesbian couples did back then, she adopted Anne Atwood as her daughter to ensure that their estate would go directly to her rather than to the state upon her passing. I'm not sure if Anne ever got the money, but I do know that the families did not. I know that was a doozy, y'all. Literal chills as I tell this story and I just, I want to go hug my kids and keep an even closer eye on them than I already do. But I can only imagine the horror these families went through and to know that no one was ever prosecuted for these crimes, it's mind-blowing. And as someone who has done a fair amount of research in and work with ancestral trauma, I can't even begin to imagine what this has done for generations to come. It's it's mind-blowing. There's no other way for me to put it. But before we close out this episode... I have a short story from a listener about a paranormal experience. So you guys keep bringing these stories in because I'm loving them. And because this was a little bit longer of an episode, I went with a little bit shorter of a story here. So Karen wrote in, 
I took a flight and had a great conversation with a man that sat next to me, and he told me about his life. He told me he was in movies and had some roles in some TV series. He said he was doing shows on Broadway and he was flying home to see his wife. He told me his name, Richard Bright, and the shows he played in. Later that night, I looked him up by the movies he starred in because I couldn't recall his name, and I found his picture next to the role he played in the Godfather movie. I was so excited to tell my family, but then saw that he was hit and killed by a bus in New York City a few years prior. So it sounds like Karen had a conversation with a ghost. What do y'all think? I don't know that I've ever had such such an intense conversation with the spirit on the other side, but what an experience that had to be. So I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on this. I would love to hear some more stories written in. Go hug your babies. Come back Wednesday for another segment of Coffee and Conjurings. I'll see y'all next week for more true crime. And Karen, thank you for sharing your celebrity ghost story with us. And y'all enjoy the rest of your day, week, month, year, whenever it is that you're listening to this. I love you all so much.